stories of Christmas. And we've been looking at um, Christmas from the perspective of different people in the Bible. And we've looked at Mary and, and the shepherds. Um, and this week we've also have the, uh, well, there's a few people in this scene. Um, there's at least four characters. There's Herod, there's the people, there's the scribes and the teachers, the priests. Um, and then there's the magi, the wise men. So we're going to look at those. But before we do, let me say this. And I'll start with C.S. Lewis, which happens a lot here. Um, so C.S. Lewis wrote a book, many books, but one of them was called The Magician's Nephew. It's the first book in the series of Narnia. Um, now people will say, no, he wrote it last. All right. It's, it's the, it's the, it starts, it's the prequel to the Narnia. It talks about how Narnia came to be. Um, and in part of it, Aslan, the great lion, is creating everything. And as he's there, he is singing everything into existence. And while he's doing it, there's a scene, a group of people there with him, observing this whole thing. There's two children. There is a cab driver. In those days, it was a horse in, in, the, in the story. So a cab driver, two kids, um, an uncle, Uncle Andrew, who is the original sort of wizard sorcerer in the book. And then you have the white witch, Jadis, before she's known as the white witch in the first, well, in the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. Now, in these, this group of people is watching creation, and they have radically different responses to Aslan. And here's what Lewis writes. The cabbie and the two children had open mouths and shining eyes. They were drinking in the sound, and they looked as if it reminded them of something. Uncle Andrew's mouth was open too, but not open with joy. He looked more as if his chin had simply dropped away from the rest of his face. His shoulders were stooped, and his knees shook. He was, he was not liking the voice. If he could have gotten away from, from it by creeping into a rat's hole, he would have done so. But the witch looked as if, in a way, she understood the music better than any of them. Her mouth was shut, her lips were pressed together, and her fists were clenched. Ever since the song began, she had felt that, with it, that this whole world was filled with a magic different from hers and stronger. She hated it. She would have smashed the whole world, of, or all worlds, to pieces if, only, if, it, if it would only stop the singing. Now, why is it that there's different responses? And if you read those books, you'll see why. But up until this point, we've looked at mostly the book of Luke. And in the gospel of Luke, you see generally very positive responses to the gospel. Positive responses. Angels come, they say, the, the baby has been born, the Messiah has been born, and people run to look at him. Here in Matthew, we see that that announcement isn't always positively received. And we see four radically different responses in this passage about how Christmas is received. And all of them, in some way, will touch on everyone in this room and everyone that we know. We have a response to Christmas. And when we look at this, what we're seeing is um, who Christmas comes to, so who hears the message, and then how they can respond to it. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at who is the message for and how do we respond to it. And the four ways we're going to see, because there's a four-point sermon, everybody. This is a landmark. <laughs> but there's four different people in the story. And we see that, the Christmas, that Christmas comes to those who are deceived, those who are distracted, those who are, are indifferent, and those who are devoted. Okay? And we're going to see all those in the characters in the story. So let's begin with deceived, and we'll start with Herod. So Herod is arguably the star of this passage. I know people make it the wise men, but Herod is mentioned a lot. And he's mentioned throughout this passage and throughout this chapter, and we're going to talk about him on Christmas Eve as well. And Herod, so if you, if you don't know, Herod the Great was a king. 
and he ruled from 37 BC until 4 BC. So a 33-year reign in the ancient world is pretty impressive because a lot of knives were out to get the king. He becomes king for two possible reasons we know of. One, he's actually a really solid leader and a capable leader, even though he becomes very brutal, especially near the end of his reign. But he's also very good friends with a man named Mark Antony, who was part of the triumvirate. If you know the history of Rome, after Caesar dies, there's a civil war between three guys, and one of them is Mark Antony. And he is a good friend of Herod's, so he helps him get this role. Now, Herod is not a Jew, Okay? Most people assume he is. He's not. He's an Edomite. He comes from Edom, which is the, the land south of Israel. And, uh, but he does profess to be a Jew. He claims, I am, oh sure, I'm, I'm Jewish. But we know he doesn't know his Bible so well because he has to call people to ask a very basic question right, about where the Messiah is supposed to come from. So he is not, not a Jew, but he's very capable. So he's also very shrewd, very paranoid, especially now, because at this point, it's near the end of his life. Now, when the Magi come to him, and you can talk in your community groups later, but I think the Magi, the wise men, as bright as they are, are quite naive of politics because they have to be warned that this is a trap. That they have to, and they come to the king, who is known for being quite ruthless, and they say to him, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Now, when you say that there's another king to the existing king, it, 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 it quite literally says you're illegitimately on the throne. So that's a problem. And so Herod is understandably a little put back, right? He's, he's, he's cautious. In fact, not cautious at all. He's angry. Um, but, you know, he's also aware of this. In the ancient world, he's going to have enemies. Herod had plenty of enemies. And he knows that if there is a, a, is a guy out there, some baby, some rallying point, some claimant for the throne that his enemies can gather around, that's bad news. So he understandably responds from a human perspective, with fear, with, with concern and anxiety. But there's two, it's not the only way he could have responded, right? He could have responded one of two ways. He should have responded as every Israelite king ought to have responded to this and should have lived all through the history of Israel, which is they should have understood and he should have known he was a steward. So steward in the English word means housekeeper, literally. And every king of Israel understood themselves or were supposed to as stewards, meaning there is a king coming. God is going to come with his Messiah, and he is the rightful king. God is the real king. You are but a steward. You're here for a time, and your job is to shepherd the people, to do really well, and to prepare things for the king who's coming. And so when you hear that that king is coming, the proper posture of a king, an Israelite king, should have been to say, praise God. Here you go. It should have been joy. He should have received it with joy, but he doesn't. He instead receives it with what, the, what, what Matthew calls tarasso. Tarasso in Greek means terror, fear. It can be used in different ways, but as an example, it's used of uh, what the disciples feel when they see Jesus walking on the water and they think he's a ghost. Remember that? The terror. It's the same word that Zechariah felt in Luke 1 when he sees an angel, his terror. It's the same word that Jesus expresses when he says his soul is troubled before the cross. So it's a pretty strong term. Now, why is it that he is afraid? And to help me under, help explain why he's afraid, we're going to do a little character study here of him. But to do that, let me use a very, very famous book. No, no, a book, a movie you've all seen or at least you've heard the theme song for called Chariots of Fire. 
And in Chariots of Fire, it's, it's a common illustration, but in it, what's happening is it covers a couple of guys who are runners, sprinters, for the uh, United Kingdom's team going into the Paris Olympics of, I think it was 1924. Harold Abrams, a Jewish man, and then Eric Liddell, the Scottish guy. And it chronicles how they both approach the Olympics and everything. Now, Harold Abrams has as a Jewish man in that culture who often felt anti-Semitism and he's feeling like he has made his life winning the gold medal. It's everything to him. And at the point, just before he goes up, about an hour before he goes to race, and he does eventually... Should I spoil it? It happened 100 years ago, but he wins. But in it, <laughs> I always feel worried. I, I spoil so many books and movies for you guys. But... Um, just before he goes up, he speaks to his friend, Aubrey, and here is what he says. And now, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Aubrey, I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. Now, see, Harold Abrams understood something. He understood that he had made, he made it out of scene it this way, but we could see it as outsiders and we're meant to see it. He wasn't a guy who was just running like Eric Liddell, the, the Christian guy who doesn't end up running because it happens on a Sunday. And when he says why he runs, it's I run because when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Now it's a different thing. Abrams, however, says, no, if I don't win, if I am not the fastest, I'm nothing. I must win. So he says, I've known the fear of losing because if his identity is in winning and being the fastest, and he's not the fastest, then what is he? Right? But then he says at, at the last moment, but I'm almost just afraid to lose. Or to, no, if I, to win. If he loses, he understands he's not the fastest. But if he wins, what happens? What happens if he wins and he is the fastest and he's still not happy? See, so he's terrified. When the moment comes, if I win, what if it's not enough? What if being the fastest in the world isn't enough? But if I lose, what am I? I'm nothing. So when we look at Herod, we have to do this, this slight jump here. Herod is under the impression, like so many kings, so many rulers, so many characters, and so many of us, that if he is not king, he is nothing. And so he fights like a dog to hang on to it. You know what your identity is. You know where your God is based on what you fight for when it's threatened. Okay? And when Herod sees, hears that there might be another king, he has to kill him. He must kill Christ, because with, if Christ is alive, then he's not king. And if he's not king, what does that mean for him? See, there's a terror in Herod and in all of us. If you don't know it, we have less stakes, right? So we're not kings and queens. So when we, we have our identities wrapped up in things, we don't bring down kingdoms necessarily. But think about a couple of examples. Well, a few. Think of David. He was a king, but let me use his example. When he sleeps with Bathsheba and has an affair, you see what he does. He will cover it up. He'll murder. He'll kill. He'll lie. All because it's a lot better. He'd rather do that than face the fact that he is a scoundrel. And he doesn't want that. He, he's built up an idea of himself, of who he is as king. And it's not that. The guy who would be this disloyal and hit, kill his own men and sleep with their wives. So he can't admit it, you see. He can't, because it'll tear down who he is in his eyes and in the world's. We have pastors who continually fall, and they will lie and cheat and cover up and pay people off so that their lie doesn't come out because they can't stand to not be who they have made themselves to be. Perfect in your eyes. 
You don't have that problem here. <laughs> but you see, and not just that, think about somebody who's a workaholic. Workaholics would sooner lose their family and lose their jobs. They'll lose everything rather than give up that identity that I've got it all together. I can make it work. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. And they'll let everything fall. And this is part of what Christmas comes. When Christmas comes to us, it roars at us. It says that it's not just this baby has come, but your king has come, your identity has come, and he will not share you with anything else. You will not be a runner, Harold Abrams. You will be a Christian. You are designed to be in Christ, all of us. And so this baby coming comes to us who are deceived, that think our identity is something else, and says, no, your identity must die. It must be found again in Christ. So Christmas tells us that we are not who we think we are, but in fact, we're far more. You're far more, Harold Abrams, than a runner. You're more David than a king. You're more, Carl, than a pastor, and so on and so forth. So that's the first thing. First thing, Christmas comes to us who are deceived, but it comes to the distracted as well. And here we have the people in Israel, the people of Jerusalem. So I don't know if you realize how small Jerusalem was. Ancient Jerusalem was about one square kilometer. So from our church to the trailer home here, the trailer park up the road, that's it, and a square. And so when caravans, with these wise men, I know we have the pictures up that have the three guys on a camel, but you have to understand, they were traveling 1,624 kilometers if they left from where we think they did, which was from Chaldees or Persia. Um, They were Chaldeans. If that's the case, then I just Googled it yesterday. To walk that far would take you 330 hours. That means 69 days if you're not stopping ever. So if you're, if you're going half that speed, 12 hours a day, it's going to take you about four to five months to go. Now, you don't travel four to five months 2,000 years ago across open desert where there's bandits and privation and all these things unless you have a large caravan with food, with servants, and with security. So... When a small little city like Jerusalem, which was big, but remember, we're talking ancient cities were not like ours. They're small. When a caravan of arguably hundreds of people come in on camels dressed differently, it's noticeable. You would have seen it coming. It's very unlikely, and I know the cards have the three guys, right? And that, that song has ruined us. We three kings of Orient are. There weren't three. There weren't kings, not from the Orient. It's a very, it's a terrible song, but I still listen to it. Ella Fitzgerald does it well, you know. But, but, so they were pro- so when they come in, it's going to cause a stir, and it tells us that Luke, uh, sorry, Matthew tells us that the city was troubled, and the reason the city is troubled is because because Herod is troubled. If a foreign group comes into the city, it means one of two things usually. Um, no, it usually only means one thing. Well, two things, let's say. So a foreign caravan comes in, they go to meet the king, they're either there to get peace or to break peace. Because they're coming, see, because astronomers, these wise men, these Chaldeans, that they probably, you see them in the book of Daniel, they always worked for kings. They were advisors for kings. It was fashionable to have them around you because it looked like you had the smartest people around you. And you used them to, to tell you what the future held, to advise you. So if they're showing up and talking to the king, they're either coming in peace from another king or they're coming to break that peace. So if indeed, and if the word gets out to the city that there's this king that may have been born, the Messiah might be here, you see why they get anxious? Because if there is a king, a rival to Herod, and they know who Herod is, that means there's going to be a civil war. 
That means our kids, our boys are going to be conscripted. That means there's going to be famine. That means there's going to be purges. And so they get troubled. They are understandably are concerned about what they're hearing. And the reason they are so distracted by their concerns, because you notice it says they're troubled, but it doesn't say anything about them going to follow the caravan to find Jesus. All we know about the people is they're troubled by the news when they should be rejoicing at the news. And it's understandable because they suffered then, just like you and I do now, from something called the myth of poverty. You and I are told from the beginning, from when we come out of the womb, that there just isn't enough anything. So there's not enough food, so you better hoard it. Remember COVID? Toilet paper. Right? You better hoard it. There's not enough time, so you better be a good steward of it. There's not enough uh, money, so you better earn it and save it and don't squander it. There's not enough uh, positions at the university, so you better work hard to secure yours. There's not enough jobs, so you better get it. There's not enough spouses, so you better get yours quick, especially the ladies, you know. Right? This, there's not enough years, so you better have children. There's not enough money, so you better have enough for savings for retirement. You see, this idea of poverty is everywhere. And so, you and I are often so focused on survival that when someone comes and says, do you know there was a baby born who is the prince of peace? They're like, okay, I've got real problems here. I've got real problems. I don't have time to go traipsing through the wilderness looking for a baby sitting in a manger. Don't have the time. And I understand it. I do. But do you see what the distractions do? They keep us from what is important. And this is why it can't get through, right? The, the, the message cannot break through that. It won't break through. It could. God can do it. But oftentimes we're so distracted that we miss it. And the passage, again, says they don't go looking. They only have fear. Um, and it reminds me of that John 1.11, that he came to those who were his, but they did not recognize him. They did not receive him. And he's coming. He's there. And they're just letting him go by. And so peace... In, or sorry, Christmas in this way then appeals, and I think I said this in the Revelation series, but it appeals to our imaginations. Imaginations isn't conjuring things that don't exist. Imagination is imagining something that isn't, in, isn't what is, you see around you at the moment. It's imagining something differently. So it comes to us in our poverty, in our distraction, and says, can you imagine a time when your money actually isn't the measure of who you are? Can you imagine a time and a reality where how much money you have doesn't secure your future? That you may have millions in the bank, but you could have cancer today and be dead. And this is what Christmas does. Is it calls to us in our poverty and attempts to drag us out to a world of imagination. So it comes to distracted people. Third person, third group it comes to. It comes to the indifference. Boy, I tried to make it a D word, but I couldn't. I had all sorts of words. But indifferent is the best way. And this is the scribes and the priests. First, Herod does something interesting. When these men come and ask, where is this child? Where is the Messiah? Herod doesn't know because he's not a Jew. And he then goes and he says, well, let me get my scribes and my chief priests. Interesting what he does there. Imagine what he's doing is he takes the chief priests who were known to be very liberal because the chief priests who were in charge were very accommodating of Roman and Greek culture. Let's welcome them in. They're very, you could think of them as the Reds, the liberals. But the scribes were the Tories. The scribes said, no, no, we're here to preserve Jewishness and, and Judaism, nothing else. So Herod calls both of these groups, it's like a prime minister, calling both sides in and saying, Give me, tell me, where is this guy supposed to be born? And they both come to the same conclusion, Micah 5.2, which is he's born in Bethlehem. But here's the interesting thing. These great scribes, and these are us. This is the part for us Christians. This is the part that we should be listening to. 
They knew scripture really well, but do you notice they say it and then they go home? They don't follow. They don't go looking for him. I imagine, as a good Pharisee myself, that <laughs> what they probably would have done, I can imagine the prime minister, well, maybe not prime minister, because why would they want to talk to me? But somebody might call, somebody who I esteem, and say, Carl, I'd love your advice on this. Okay? I would then go home, take off my jacket, and say, Sarah, can you believe it? The big shot called me up, and I was able to give him some good advice. He didn't even know it, the idiot, but I knew it. You know? And I'd feel really good. I'd boast about having been used, but I wouldn't chase the Messiah, the very one I existed to study and to know. And the reason that happens, especially to us Christians, especially us Protestant Christians, because I think I've said this to you before, see, when Catholicism goes bad, it becomes superstitious. When Pentecostalism goes bad, it becomes emotionalism. When we Protestant reform sorts of folks get, go bad, we become intellectual. So that we, we confuse understanding the gospel with receiving the gospel. Because you can articulate it, you have it. And it's just not true. Because if, you, if you've studied anything for a long time, you know there's this danger. That you can come to study something so much that it ceases to be a subject and becomes an object. That it ceases to, Christ goes from being a person to be encountered to an object to be studied. And when that happens, you become indifferent to him. You just want to know about him. And there's a very big difference, you see, because, and the biggest difference is how he knows you. If I know Frank Sinatra, you know, let's imagine I love Frank Sinatra, which I do. I like Sinatra. Imagine now, I, I, I'm a fan of Frank Sinatra. I might know, I may have read all the books. I may have all his music. I may have a GPS in his shoe. I guess he's in a grave right now, but if, if he were still walking, I'd be able to know everywhere he goes. I could know everything. And yet if somebody said, hey, Blue Eyes, do you know this Portuguese guy? He would say, I don't know him. And the reason is, knowing about Frank Sinatra is very different than encountering and meeting and knowing him. And I don't, can't claim to know Sinatra unless he knows me. There needs to be a relationship there. And so, when Christ has those haunting words of how many people will say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you, I worry for the church. Because there's many, there must be, statistically, that have this idea that because they know of him, they know him. And yet, when there's opportunity to go chasing after him and to serve him and to make him known in our world, we don't do it because we're, we're content to just know about him, to go to the Bible studies. And that's a danger for us. Um, and so, how do you know Christ? How do you know God? It's relational. You know Jesus through his word, first and foremost, his, the Bible. That is where he said, here is what, if you want to know about me, here is where it is. This takes priority. The word takes priority over every other means of knowing God. Because every other one might be fallible. And yet there are other ways to know him. Through prayer, through worship, through community, through service, lots of things. But ultimately it's his word. So this is how you get to know him. That's where you encounter him. And you have to wrestle with him. And so Christmas then comes and it tries to call us out of our indifference. And say, boy, you can't be indifferent to a man who, says, who comes and says, he is your everything, and without him you're nothing. If anyone doesn't have a very strong reaction to Christ, either embrace or reject, I don't think you've met him. If you're content to say he's a good teacher, I'm sorry, you haven't read, you haven't listened to him. He doesn't give you the option to say he's a good teacher. Because good teachers don't say things like, if you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you will live. It's not a good teacher. And if he's lying, he's certainly not a good teacher. 
He, you either run to him or you, or you run from him. If you're stuck in the middle, maybe you just need to meet him again. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you definitely need to meet him again. So, Charles Spurgeon, I'll say this because he said it much better than I did to close this last third point anyway. May it never be my case to be a master of scriptural geography, prophecy, and theology, and yet miss him of whom the scriptures speak. And that is my constant prayer as a pastor. Last thing. So he comes to those various people. He then comes to devoted. And here we have the magi, the, the, um, the wise men. Now, who were these guys? They come from probably, we don't know a lot, but here's what we do know. They come, they're known as Chaldeans or Chaldeans or Chaldeans. That's how it's pronounced. And we know, remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel is um, divining, determining what these, the dreams of the kings are all about. And after he does it successfully, if you read in Matthew, in Daniel 5, it tells us that Daniel was made chief over all the Chaldeans, astronomers, magicians, and so on. In other words, Daniel becomes Babylon's chief magi. And as chief magi, we know his writings were studied by generations of magi after the fact. You also know, if you read history, that Rome, everybody in the, in the ancient Near East in that area knew about this Jewish Messiah that was supposed to come. Everybody knew it. The emperors knew that Israel was talking about this king that would come and save his people and rule the world. But they just thought he was a great king. So if these magi, these wise men in Chaldees, which is south of Babylon, right off the Persian Gulf, if they're there, part of their studies would be to study Daniel's works. So it's not a surprise that they were looking for this king that would one day come. But a few things we need to note that they didn't know. But let me have you say this, because it's, a, it's a kind of an elephant in this one. What is the nature of this star right, that they're following? Because stars don't behave the way Matthew says. Stars don't show up and then start moving and settle over houses. This is this doesn't, not what works. And there are a lot of Christians who do a lot of gymnastics with NASA to try to determine that, how this happens. Some people think it was Halley's Comet because Halley's Comet would have swung by around 12 BC, which means Jesus was born earlier. Lots of things. Let me just say this. What is being described by Matthew is not a natural phenomenon. I don't think you're wise, or I, you and I are wise to look up and say, oh, God is just using a cycle that happens every so, uh, so many years. No, no, no. What's being described is something quite different, quite unique, quite supernatural. If you can't embrace the supernatural, you're going to have a lot of trouble with Christianity. It's, it's clearly, let's not do gymnastics. Let's, let's sit and enjoy the mystery for a minute, which is hard for us Protestants. Let's enjoy the mystery that we don't know. But what we do know is they were looking. And let's look at what we can learn from them, because there's much we can learn, Christians and skeptics here. For, and I'll just use some headings, and I won't put them on the board because I forgot. So first thing they're doing is they were watching. Okay? They were waiting. Many of us, many people in Jerusalem were actually waiting for the Messiah. We see that in Luke. There's people who were expecting him. So they were looking. They were actually paying attention. They were looking for the signs. And then when they saw it, they responded to it. But here's what I find fascinating. They needed the word of God. You see, the sign wasn't enough to lead them to Christ. It led them to the people of God and the word of God, who then pointed them to Christ. See, it's an important point. Because when increasingly Christians are thinking that they, can, they exclusively have the word of the Holy Spirit in them, and I can, because I feel it, it's true, because it's consistent with what I think the Bible says, it's true. It's not the way it works. You cannot be a Christian outside of the community, 
because the Word of God is understood communally as well. And you cannot meet Christ without meeting Him in the Word. It's just the way it's going to be. And that's clear here. I think that's a fascinating little tidbit there. But then, notice this as well. They're ignorant of the Bible. Okay? As much as they may have read some Daniel and been looking for a king of some type, they don't know Micah. They don't know the very basics of messianic theology in Israel. So they're ignorant. But do you notice that it doesn't keep, God doesn't scorn them because they lack theological knowledge. The very fact that they came and they were looking and they were waiting, even though they didn't understand all of it, and they didn't, God doesn't scorn them, but he accepts them. And he continues to lead them and he protects them in dreams. And so maybe that's a little bit of a pride in us that needs to go when we realize that, boy, you know, people don't need perfect theology to be saved. There's people, perhaps even dying outside the church, in obscurity, with no knowledge, except for a hope that the king has come. And that might be enough. It seems to have been enough here. So we have to sometimes wrestle with what that means. And I'm going to get emails for that one too, but that's okay. Sacrificial. They are incredibly sacrificial because what we don't hear is that the, these wise men are connected to another king. They don't come as an envoy from another nation, or else we would have heard it, which makes us think that they waste, not wasted, that's a terrible word, they spent and they invested and they sacrificed and gave of their time, four or five months, one-way trip, that doesn't count coming back, that they gave who knows how much, I actually couldn't even fathom how much money it would cost to take hundreds of people across the desert. I don't know, but a lot more than pastors make. That much I know. So they sacrifice their time. They sacrifice even their, potentially their reputation. Because if they are magi, somebody must be paying them for their services. And if it's a king and they're told that they're going to go worship another king, there's a, potentially, a, a, they're, they're sacrificing something to, to do this. Um, and think about the gifts that they bring as well. And I'll talk about those in a second, but those cost a lot of money as well. I'll go into more detail in a second. Third, or fifth, I don't know. They're committed. This much we know. What they did shows commitment. It wasn't a frivolous, let me just go to the Christmas Eve service. No, it was a commitment that they, they invested in this. They were humble. They had... In that, in that culture, they were kind of rock stars. See, the Magi were these very intelligent, they're kind of the scientists of their day, you know? And today, everybody thinks science is going to save the world, and I listen and love science, but science, scientists are not saviors. And for them to then come with all of their knowledge and sit and bow and pay homage to a baby, a Jewish baby, a poor Jewish baby, is an incredible act of condescension, of, of humility to do that. And yet we have people today who will resist Christianity and say, no, no, it's not sophisticated enough a, a thought. You know, it's too primitive for me. It's below me. Only, only idiots with cr who need crutches are Christians. Yes, okay. I'm, first of all, let me admit this. I'm an idiot who needs God, 100%. 100%. And we all do. And they didn't see an obstacle to faith being that their, their intelligence and their grandeur was going to be uh, put beneath them as they worshiped someone under them on the social scale. Okay? It's incredible humility. But then they come and they worship. Now, the word for worship here in Greek is the word for worship. But you'll notice every, well, every English translation just about will say worship, except for the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version, which, call, which says they paid homage. And the reason they do that, why do they say pay homage instead of worship? I think it's smart. I think it's because we know these guys did not worship 
the way you and I would understand worship. Because they did not know that Jesus' baby was the Son of God, the Lamb of God, to die to take away the sins of the world, to be risen for their sake and to ascend to heaven and intercede for them at the right hand of the Father. They didn't know that. But what they did know was there's this king coming who's going to save people, and he's coming from God. So I ought to worship him. I ought to pay homage to him. And they did. And that was enough. God didn't say, no, thank you. Theology is not good enough. You don't see the fullness. No, that was enough for them to come. And then they bring these gifts. And now we have made much of the gifts, which is good. But understand, the gifts that they brought, they didn't understand. They're not Jews, right? They don't know their Bible. We know that much. So when they bring these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they're not thinking theologically. God uses their humility, their willingness, their, their love, their generosity to bring gifts. And the gifts they're bringing are actually very common gifts in the ancient world. They're the gifts, sort of gifts you'd bring to, to, to kings because they're incredibly expensive. And they bring them because they simply say, I'm going to bring God the very best I have. What's the best we can do? It's gold, incense, which if you know about frankincense, it's painstaking to get it out of a very rare plant. And then myrrh as well. We've talked, you've heard this in other sermons, I'm sure, but myrrh, when you get perfume like that, that was used to anoint and to, um, to keep the smell off of dead bodies uh, when they're embalmed and such, they come in alabaster jars. So the jar itself is worth a lot of money and they don't have screw top lids. So it was sealed. So the only way to open it was to crack it open. And so that would have been incredibly, incredibly expensive as well. So they bring these gifts, but then God looks at them and says, yes, you brought those gifts out of your own, I'm using your own inclination to love and to worship to bring these. But what you don't know is that gold is for a king, incense is for a priest, and for myrrh is for the prophets who all die because of my word. And so here we are, that God is taking the simple humility, the generosity of astrologers. Could you imagine an astrologer coming in today who's, Want, brings up, they bring up their crystal, their crystal ball here into the church, and they say, this is my life. This is what I do for a living. But I think your king is the right king. How do we respond to that? God doesn't say, break the ball. He will in time say, break the ball. But you see at this moment where God is welcoming, and what you're seeing as well around the manger, though they're not at the manger, but still, is this. You see, begin to see the church forming around the manger. You see shepherds, Right? Those who are somewhat lower, uh, lower echelon. You see wise men coming and foreigners coming. You see women coming. You're seeing all of this around there. And what have they gathered to do? Worship. They've called to worship and to tell each other what they've seen. So when we come to Sundays to think about what church is, what is it? To worship and tell you what we've seen. That's church. And you begin to see it already forming. And when, if you've been in the church long enough, you know that some people aren't very churchy. Right? They're, they're pretty low. They're, they're coming along. They're not very Christian. They still got a lot of baggage. They still check their horoscopes every day. And we want to say, oh, they'll learn. Yeah, okay, but you see, God is working in them. God wants them. He's embracing them. He's, he's dragging them into the kingdom with us, in the same, same as all of us. And you begin to see this very challenging picture here of the, of the, of the church forming. Now, let me close here. When you bring a gift to a king in the ancient world, it was always the case that the king would then give you a gift. Because, a few reasons. One, it was just nice. 
It was actually meant to say, if I'm Caesar and you are coming from Edom and you're bringing me something because you're hoping you can secure better wheat trade or something, then you give me a gift to secure my favor and I give one back to you to say, okay, thank you, I'll, we're, we're, we're good, we're good here. But there's another reason. The other reason they gave gifts back to the envoys was because it was, make it no mistake, envoy, you have not put me in your debt by your gift. You've given me a gift, doesn't mean I owe you anything. I am Caesar. I don't owe anybody anything. And so, when God, when Mary and Joseph don't, we're not told, they don't give any gift back, it's very obvious why, right? Because the gift is the baby. The gift is that child. Because the only way to have the peace, I think Janet was talking about earlier, see, Herod couldn't have peace, right? He couldn't rest because he had this burden of having to feed his identity as king. The people couldn't rest because they felt that um, they couldn't rest without losing something, survival, life, livelihood, whatever it was. The scribes, well, the scribes, they didn't know the truth. They were numb to God. And when God shows up, as this gift, this baby. He's two things in the ways he's a gift. The first one is the only way you're going to have peace is if you have peace with God. And what offering can you bring to God that is acceptable? None. Because nothing will ever earn you favor with God unless it's God himself. That baby comes as his offering, our, as our offering, a gift to us so that when we go to God, we bring it to God and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross. You hold the baby out and say, this is the offering. This child who did everything, who lived the life I couldn't and died the death I couldn't, that's the gift. And then the gift then comes into us because then he says, it's, not, it's one thing to make peace, but now to keep peace, you can't do it on your own. I must dwell in you and be constantly doing renovations. And so the gift comes as you to give to God and then into you so that you may continue to serve and follow God. It's the greatest gift. There's no peace for us because there's no peace with God. That is what Christmas is saying. If we want to have peace in ourselves, we must have this child. And so, Christians, rejoice. Stop being indifferent. You have this gift. Skeptics, embrace the gift. It's just sitting there for you to take by God's grace. Let's pray.